Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. What is up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Welcome back to the Speaker Lab podcast. We're glad you are here. We appreciate you hanging out with us. Today, we're going to be talking with Andrew Davis. And Andrew has had a very successful speaking career. We've got a lot to cover with him. Before we get into that, I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago about a new free software tool that we created to help you find and contact potential leads for speaking engagements. This is a free tool. That's the best part. I think you're going to really like that. Free tool that you can check out over at myspeakingagent.com, myspeakingagent.com, where we will walk you through exactly how to find potential engagements in your niche, in your genre, in your industry. So again, make sure you check that out over at myspeakingagent.com. All right. So today, again, we're going to be talking with Andrew Davis. We're going to talk through uh, one thing that Andrew's done really, really well is he generates a ton of referrals from his engagements and speaking that he does. So we talk through exactly how he does that. How does he create a more referable talk? We also talk about what his goal is for each gig in terms of referrals and how he strategically makes that happen. We also talk about which specific specific industry events he focuses on and why. This is a really strategic move that he makes. And basically, he talks through like why bigger events aren't necessarily better events. This is something I hear a lot from speakers that you know that the bigger the event, the more the national event, the more exposure that you're going to get. And the reality is, is that's not always the case. So Andrew shares some great wisdom and insights on what events he targets and why he goes after those. All right, that is uh, what we're going to be getting into. So uh, let's not uh, waste any more time. Let's get right into it with Andrew Davis. Enjoy. What's up, my friends? Grant Baldwin here. Hey, today we're hanging out with Andrew Davis, who is a uh, marketing speaker, best-selling author, and uh, honored to have him hanging out with us. So, Andrew, how are you today? Have you had your fair share of coffee today? I have, man. In fact, I have a cup of coffee right in front of me. How much coffee do you drink on a daily basis? By this time in the morning, I'm an early riser. So by 10 a.m., I've probably had, uh, I don't know, probably 24 cups or something. That's not even an exaggeration. That's legit. I'm not a coffee guy at all. So I don't know if you think less of me in any way. uh, (laughs) No, no, totally. I don't know how I can get by without it. But I know plenty of people, friends of mine who, who just don't drink it. And I, I mean, I've tried. And I just fall apart. That's okay. There's no shame in that. This is a safe place. Let it out. <laughs> Thanks. I'm, yeah, I'm going to share it. So, uh, all right. So you are primarily known as, as a marketing speaker. So for someone not familiar with you, the speaking that you do and how speaking kind of fits into your business, give us that snapshot. I actually started in the television business uh, about 20 years ago. Um, I was a television producer. I wrote for Charles Kuralt, which some people in the audience might be old enough to remember, but he's an amazing storyteller. I worked for the Today Show in New York as a producer. I worked for the Jim Henson Company for the Muppets. And then I started working in the marketing world about 1999, which was like the big tech boom, uh, you know, in the late 90s. Uh, so I worked for a series of startups as a as kind of a marketing person. I didn't know anything about marketing. Actually, I just was a good storyteller. Yeah. And in 2001, I founded my own 
digital marketing agency, which I sold in 2012. And originally, I started speaking as a lead gen tool for my agency. So in 2008, I started speaking and it became the primary lead gen tool for the business. And then I sold the agency in 2012. And since then, I've just been speaking 100% of the time. So keynote speeches around the world for the last uh, five years. So whenever you first got started speaking and using it as lead gen for the agency, was that the clear intention? Or is it something that you just kind of stumbled into? Or, or how did that kind of come to be? It was something I stumbled into as a lead gen tool. So uh, I was attending an event in 2008 when I'm one of those like really early risers, but I'm also really like meticulously early to everything. So I showed up at an event, you know, like 45 minutes early and I was like sitting there waiting for everyone to get started. And the event organizer introduced themselves and said, Hey, look, I don't even know who you are, but we had someone cancel for the 1030 breakout session, like right after the morning keynote. And, you know, are you willing to fill in? And I was like, sure. They had no context Uh, of who you were or anything. They had no idea. We talked for about 10 minutes and that's when they launched the question on me. And so instead of going to the morning keynote, I ran back to my room, put together a 40-minute presentation with a bunch of junk that we'd been working on at the agency from not work we had done, but frameworks we use. Yeah. And then you know, kind of just vomited on the audience for 45 minutes in the breakout session. And it turned out to be a very highly rated session. I would say, looking back on it, it was probably a terrible session in my estimation. But it ended up generating leads for the business immediately afterwards. And from that day forward, you know, I kind of focused as the kind of chief strategy officer for the agency on really leveraging uh, speaking to generate leads uh, in a much more efficient way than ever before. So what did that look like going forward then in terms of using it as lead generation? Because you're going to naturally have some type of natural spinoff of, oh, this, you know, uh, this seems interesting. I'd like to work with this guy. But is there anything intentional that you were doing to specifically get gig or get a business for the agency? Yeah, well, it was 100% intentional uh, over time. So it wasn't immediate, but I developed a really kind of a strategic approach to this. So essentially, to boil it down in a nutshell, we picked a niche every single year, usually around this time of the year. Right now, it's like it's fall, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it, late summer, we choose a niche that we wanted to generate some new clients in. So it could be housing industry. We didn't have any clients in the housing industry. So we'd essentially offer the biggest publisher in the industry a keynote session on the closing day of their biggest conference. And I'd go to the event for the like three-day event. You know, I'd spend the first two days learning all I could about the industry. I'd take a bunch of frameworks and a session that I'd probably done last year and kind of tailor it to fit to the industry for a closing keynote. I'd deliver the closing keynote and it would do two things. One, it would generate leads for the business, meaning C-level executives coming up to me afterwards and saying, wow, that was amazing. Love the stuff that you were talking about. Is that what you do? And that's the key question. Instead of telling people what they do, what we did, we wanted people to walk up and say, what do you do? Is that what you do? And our answer would be yes. And then we'd you know, kind of pull them through to becoming a client if they're a right fit. And the second thing it did was it would generate three minimum three referrals. I call them stage side leads within the first 36 hours for new speaking gigs in the same niche. Like that example, even actually the construction industry is a good one because I think we, we targeted that in 2009. And over the next three years, that one gig generated 53 other gigs. Wow. So were you doing a lot of gigs with the intention of, I'm going to do kind of these high level gigs and ideally doing those keynotes. And then it's just going to have kind of a trickle down effect of spinoff, repeat, referral type of business for the next foreseeable future. Yeah, that's been the strategy every single year since. So essentially, the 
a hundred percent of my speaking business is referral based. I mean, maybe it's ninety seven percent, but generally, you know, the leads I get are generated from prior engagements, and the majority of them do come in within the first seven to ten days, and they all, you know, the goal for me. I know I have a great keynote speech when it's immediately referable. And that's when I kind of ramp up process to kind of keep it going. Did I even answer your question, Grant? Yeah, Sorry. No, there's a couple of things that you touched on there. I want to, I want to get to. Yeah. So you said kind of your strategy was figuring out kind of the kingpin type of conference where, you know, if I mm-hmm. get in that one, then it makes all the other dominoes fall afterwards. Yeah. So I'm curious then, how are you identifying which conference would be kind of that, that kingpin, so to speak, but also how do you get your foot in the door in there? Because naturally, if it's going to be a big national conference, big national convention, oftentimes thousands of people, it's extremely competitive. There's a lot of people who want an opening or a closing spot or anything in between. So yeah. how are you identifying those and how are you getting in with those? <laughs> so I boiled it down to a really straightforward strategy that I still use. It's essentially, I identify the largest publisher, not the largest event producer. And a, a lot of times there's actually a big difference. So sometimes there's let's just take real estate. Like there's, there are real estate events that have 20,000 people attending and that would be awesome to be the keynote speaker. But that, let's just for fun, assume that that event doesn't come from the biggest content producer. And what I'm actually trying to create is this illusion in the industry that all of a sudden I'm someone they've never heard of, but I know a lot about the industry. And when you choose the publisher, the person who generates the most highest quality content and potentially is being around the longest, you actually create this illusion within the industry that you're kind of everywhere all of a sudden Mm -hmm. because they generate a ton of content from those events. So that They'll do video interviews with you. They put it in their print magazine. All of a sudden, you're on the cover of their next issue. Like, you know, they want to interview you as an expert for the next five issues as an expert in a specific article. And so, all of a sudden, you're kind of bombarded as in the industry with my face, essentially. So that's the most important piece of the puzzle. And the building the relationship with them is actually not as hard as it might seem. What I generally do is I approach it as a content producer first. So I go out and I ask if I can interview the publisher and the editor of the of the publication about the biggest issues in the industry as it pertains to marketing. And I usually under the auspices of it being an article, whether it's for LinkedIn or for Forbes or for Fortune or for some, you know, for it's going to be published somewhere. And all I need is 15 minutes. And then I kind of regurgitate the article back to them, you know, after it's published. And then the next step is essentially as that relationship evolves, generate a session description that's specific for their industry, given all the things I learned, shoot it back to them and say, Hey, I've been working on a keynote speech, you know, for the industry, just want to get your feedback on this keynote session. And uh, more often than not, if you know what you're doing, and you can write great session descriptions, they respond with, Oh, my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah, we have an event coming up, it would be awesome if you could deliver this. And that's when I say, Well, usually I'm really expensive, but I'm really interested in this event. Let's chat and you know get on the phone again and talk through it. So would you oftentimes do those industry events for free, knowing that it leads to so much spinoff business? In the early days, I did. I, I mean, I try not... I do about nine free gigs a year, generally only for nonprofits. And I yeah. strategically kind of place them in my schedule. And I have done those industry events for free usually with some sort of back-end deal. So I can I, I spoke in the um, kind of food service industry one of the years was my that was my niche that I targeted. I pretty effectively negotiated a deal that was like a really low fee for the first keynote because they, you know, it was a total unknown quantity for them. They had no idea if I could deliver. And they would then obligate to hire me for three more of their events over the next 12 months at, you know, kind of a 
a bulk rate. That's an air quotes for yeah. you guys listening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but a discount and with a clear understanding that that was essentially getting paid back for the gig I did for very cheap. So the events themselves, it sounds like it's not necessarily the biggest industry event. It's oftentimes the publication, a kind of the main industry, trade journal, publication, magazine, whatever it may be, figuring out what that is. So there may be, like you, like you mentioned, there may be 20,000 people for some real estate conference, but the publication for realtors may be, you know, a couple thousand people. Exactly. Um, but for yeah. you, that's going to be where more influencers would be. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I developed this thing I call the audience influence pyramid, <laughs> or if you're an event producer, it's called the, I call it the audience illusion pyramid. And it's actually, you know, as I broke down the effectiveness of events in generating fast closing referrals for either speaking or for the agency business, it was pretty clear that the vast majority of the audience at almost every event is kind of practical people, meaning they want practical takeaways. They're supposed to do this work when they get back. And then above that, there's kind of managers. And then above those people, and you're, you know, if this is a pyramid, you're getting smaller and smaller as you go up. You know, there's managers who want to know how they can teach their team to do the practical stuff. What can I take back? And then above them, there's kind of like, let's just call them upper management. They want to know other teams that have been successful implementing what you're talking about. So you're getting less and less practical and getting more and more strategic as you go up the rung. Mm -hmm. And at the very top, there's C-level executives who actually don't want to know anything about the practical stuff. They want to know the strategies and frameworks behind the thinking. And they want kind of proof points that it's worked in the past at a very high level. And those are the people, to be honest, that generate the three fast closing leads at every one of the the events. Those are the stage side you know, referrals. And so those are the events I actually target. So for example, a lot of these publications have like, you know, the 100... Uh, top companies list event, you know, yeah. and it's generally C-level executives from the top 100 biggest or most successful or fastest growing companies. And they're coming there not just to be honored, but also to learn from some of the best and the brightest in the industry. Those events are more top tier level people than the events that get 20,000 people in the room. Uh, you know, so it's, it's even 100 people, but they're the C-level executives. And those are the ones that walk up afterwards and say, man, you could transform my business. There's no way I could deliver that message to my team. Can you come to my company and do it? Or, you know, I'm a board member on our association's uh, board. We're putting together our giant industry event. And a lot of times that's the 20,000 person event. And we'd love to have you keynote. Your message would be absolutely relevant to them. So whenever you are just kind of doing the homework on some of those potential events, you're looking for the publication industry type of events. How do you know whether or not the right people are going to be in the audience? Because even to like your point, there may be an event that there's 20,000 people there, but it may not be the right 20,000 versus yeah. a different event with 100 people seems on paper like, ah, it's only 100 people, but it's the right 100 people that can lead to so much other potential events. So like from a, an event planner standpoint, they often pitch it as, well, you know, there's so many people here, you're going to get so yeah. much exposure. And I always tell speakers like, in most cases, that's not accurate. In some cases, it is true, but you have to know as the speaker whether or not it's true for you and if it makes sense. So is that just something you kind of figured out along the way that these publication, these industry publications are really the hubs where a lot of these influencers and decision makers meet? Yeah. I mean, what I've noticed is generally a lot of these are legacy brands 
quote unquote, meaning they started as traditional publishing brands and have been for a long time. I mean, you can probably list them in your niche, right? Any niche has them. And they come with a lot of kind of prestige and clout within the industry versus the startup publications or event companies. And and by startup, I don't mean to denigrate them. These events are amazing, right? Like no matter what, uh, the big events, the small events, the niche events, it's not about the event. But when it comes to the attendees, I've found, it's my personal experience, that the publisher events generate the highest quality kind of C-level executives that work for me best. Yeah, I'm trying to think how I actually know. Um, well, let me ask you this then. So yeah. in, a, in an event, so let's say there's anywhere, you know, 100 people or 1,000 people or whatever it may be, it's the right type of event. But even to your point earlier, that going up that pyramid, there's going to be a small percentage of the audience that is the C-level people that ultimately those are decision makers for other events. So whenever you are working on your message, your keynote, are you wanting to say, hey, I'm going to... I'm willing to alienate 80, 90% of the audience to speak to that 10%, knowing that that leads to business? Or, or like, how do you think that through? Because like you mentioned, one yeah. end wants the practical, the other end who may hire you for other stuff doesn't care about the practical. So how do you find the balance there? In the, well, in the so I think that's kind of part of the art of being a great keynote speaker. Because to be honest, I actually think you actually have to deliver something that speaks to every one of those tiers. But the most important tier isn't the practical bottom piece. And unfortunately, and it's not the fault of the event organizer at all, but when the event organizer sends out the post-event surveys, right, the biggest feedback they always get is more practical sessions. And and this has been the case for the last 10 years that I've been speaking, right? It's, it has, there's no, change in 10 years. It's not the economy. It's not the types of speakers they have. It's not the event. I've been to thousands of different events over the years. And the feedback is also always the same. And here's the reason. The reason is that the vast majority of attendees at every event are looking for the practical takeaways. And also, those are the only people that, not the only people, but they're the majority of the people that then fill out, you know, the response cards for the ratings and reviews, which means I honestly don't know a lot of C-level executives that take the time to fill out the five-page, you know, response card. But those are the people who actually end up hiring me the fastest at the highest rates most often. And so I'm aware that to be invited back, I have to be seen as practical. But I think practical is a spectrum, right? Like I view it as I need to give you the practical steps to get started today. But that doesn't mean it's the how-to. It's just the how to think and get you on the path to success. But what's more important is the framework that I deliver so that you can understand where you sit today and the outcome you can expect in the future. But if I give you every step, you end up with low-quality referrals that take too long to close and they're like nine months out because they're going to go back and try it on their own only to realize they didn't have all of the information or they couldn't do it on their own. Now they need you for support and assistance. So you were doing all of this like in the agency days, do you still follow this model today knowing that without the agency? Pretty much the same model. Yeah. I mean, there may be, there's some kind of slight tweaks in the sense that, you know, I care less and less about the, you know, the practical execution for lack of a better term on the other end, you know, as an agency, we were really 
interested in ensuring that we created the right moment of inspiration in a C-level executive's mind so that it led to a service that we could deliver for them. Yeah. And today, I think less and less about that. You know, if, if something excites me this year, like this year, I'm really excited about video. I have a video background. I came out of television. Video is all the rage. And I spent the last year working on a new keynote speech that's all about earning attention and, and the right kind of attention with the right kind of video stories. And it's been really fun, you know, and I don't have to worry about whether the agency would be able to execute on whatever the moment of inspiration is right. that comes out of that. Is there anything that you're doing on stage to intentionally try to get some of those leads so that you mentioned kind of the, the as soon as you walk off stage, you're having people who are coming up to you. And again, like you mentioned, like some of that happens organically. People are just connecting the dots of like, oh, he, you know, this would be great for him to come do this. And some people, it's always baffling to me. They sit in an audience, they watch you. They don't know that like, they think this is the one-off thing that you did it. They just happen to see the one talk you've ever given and they just don't connect the dots. They're like, no, no, like this is what you do. So is there anything you say within the talk or anything that you say toward the end and the closing? Hey, if you'd like to have me come speak at your next event, let me know. What what does that process look like during the talk that leads to some of those side stage conversations? Um, so I've never done that as far as I can remember anyway. My goal is always to get people so excited and intrigued about what I do that they have to ask. And that's the kind of conversation I want to have. So I get a lot of people coming up saying like, that was amazing. You know, is that what you do? Like if I just gave, I have a speech called the loyalty loop that I've been giving for a few years that people really love and people, you know, come up afterwards immediately and go, man, that was awesome. I love the loyalty loop. Is that what you do? Do you help companies, you know, implement the loyalty loop? And it gives me the opportunity to say, well, no, I actually don't do that anymore. I used to run an agency. Now I just speak and write for a living. You know, but I'm happy to help if I can connect you with someone who can actually deliver on the loyalty loop experience. Gotcha. Interesting. So one of the things I'm also curious on with you is that you primarily position yourself as a marketing speaker. Is that fair? Yeah, marketing speaker. For sure. Yeah. So marketing is one of those topics. And this is the, the case with a lot of speakers is they have some topic that realistically could appeal to any a type of audience, you know, so marketing mm. for small businesses, large businesses, all types of industries, niches, verticals that are options there. The reality though, is you, if you try to appeal to all of those, it becomes very, very difficult to get any traction. So I like one of the things that you had mentioned at the beginning where you said one of your strategies is each year you're kind of picking one vertical. So whether that's construction or real estate or association mm-hmm. or doctors or whatever it may be. So I'm curious, just kind of the thought behind that. What have you found as like, have you tried to appeal to everybody and you're just like, that just doesn't work. So I need to do it once a year, just like way focus it in. Just I'm curious your, your thought process on that. Well, the secret is that <laughs> I think every industry, actually, I don't even think I know, you know, so one part of my process is doing these, the, I call them Jesus, I just drew a blank. Hold on. Uh, <laughs> you're not on stage. Uh, don't worry. What I, yeah. What do I call them? It's <laughs> essentially as part of my lead nurturing process. We have a what the heck is it? Like session description call. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It'll come back to me in just a minute. It's like, I look at it every day in ProsperWorks and it shows me how many people are in that phase. It's going to drive me nuts. But anyway, we we have a session description call essentially uh, to talk about the session that they'd like to have have me put together um, and deliver. And the truth is, I've never talked to an industry that doesn't believe their industry is different in some fundamental way. And I certainly believe that if you extrapolate the problem or the the issue that they're dealing with, it's actually the same for everybody. The issue is the way they talk about it is very different. So what I'm actually doing is not uh, creating a new speech for construction or housing or travel and tourism or hotels or 
all I'm doing is actually trying to contextualize the problem in a way that really resonates with the audience. And the only way you can do that is by really, really listening and hearing. And I think that's how I get the premium fee because they really do believe I understand the problem and I can speak to it in a way that they believe will make an impact. And the actual asset becomes that I'm an outsider and I have outside examples that I can relate to an industry that they now understand. I, I see the real problem that they face. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Like, how do you pick each year which industry you're going to go after? Because again, like marketing mm. can appeal to anybody and everybody. And I think oftentimes we feel like I want to cast a net as wide, as far and wide as possible. And the reality is, it's very counterintuitive, but you, you need to be a lot more focused and say, I'm just going to focus on construction, or I'm just going to focus on housing or tourism or hotels or whatever it may be. Yeah. And so oftentimes we feel like, well, if I, if I go after just construction, then I'm doing, and then I'm, I'm losing out on business and travel or hotels or these others. So how do you kind of figure out which lane you're going to stay in for that particular season? Well, so let me just mention two things. I think the first thing is it's kind of a cumulative game. So even though nine years ago, I spoke in the housing industry for the first time, and it generated that one event generated 53 gigs over the next three years, like last year or this year, 2017, I'll still generate probably $75,000 or $100,000 of revenue. That's a result of a gig from that gig, which is another gig. Does that make sense? So it's not like this year, you won't see me anywhere else except for travel and tourism because that's all I'm focusing on. So what happens is you're betting actually on the long game that if I start on travel and tourism today, in three years, I'll be speaking at, you know, 20% of my business will come from travel and tourism events. This year, it might only be a small percentage of that 3% of my total revenue. You see what I'm saying? So you're actually playing a long bet. And it's not that this year, you're only going to speak in travel and tourism. So I, I actually probably use three different things to determine what's the next niche for me. One, Is it a passion point of mine? Like, am I actually interested in researching this and diving deep? And is it an industry that I think needs a lot of help um, where they haven't really rethought things for a long time? I think the second thing is, is there already someone there who's got some new thinking? Like I do a little bit of a competitive analysis and see if if the the people that are talking about marketing in that industry are quote unquote stale, meaning like it's the same guy for the last 15 years has been doing the marketing keynotes and breakouts in that industry, well then it's rife for some new blood, right? And the third thing is usually based on where I'm headed long term. Like I wrote a book called Town Inc., which was all about essentially generating marketing a place, a town or a city. And so, you know, focusing on travel and tourism made a huge amount of sense there. And I wanted to make sure that I was starting that ball rolling so that as the book came out and, and I continued the success there that I would be able to, you know, generate gigs in that as the book came around. Yeah. It sounds like there's a real trickle down effect of, you know, you, I'm going to go all in for one year on this, knowing that that's going to continue to lead to things for the next several years. And then in year two, I may be going to a different industry and that's going to trickle down for the next couple of years as well. So it sounds like, I mean, for you overall, the strategy has been speaking has led to more speaking. I don't think there's a better way to build a speaking business. If your speech isn't referable, I mean, literally, if you cannot walk off the stage and get three referrals within the next 36, 72 hours, your speech is not good enough. I mean, I firmly believe that there are always people in every audience that if they see you, they all of a sudden realize that this is the great speaker for our association, or this is a great speaker for our corporate event, or this is our great speaker that should come in and, you know, inspire our team. And if, if you're not getting those referrals, the first thing you need to do is start working on the speech. 
What do you think makes your talk referable? I think the important elements are that it's high level enough and kind of smart enough. That's in air quotes too, because it's relative, but uh, (laughs) that people walk away thinking, you know, that was amazingly well presented. The style that it was presented in is something that I can't replicate and it won't have the impact. If I got the PowerPoint slides and try to get my team through it or give it on my own, I wouldn't be able to do it. People wouldn't feel the, the inspiration. I think two, what's really important is having a framework or more than one framework that's original thinking that you've developed that is simple enough for someone to draw on a dry erase board after they've seen your keynote and explain to someone else but not do it as powerfully as you. And the second thing, the the B level to that is the framework has to be deep enough that it expands over time. That if you had another hour with that same audience, you could make the level of understanding and how powerful that framework is deeper and deeper. And I think that's where people walk away going, man, I need that inside my organization. And they're looking for ways around it. I mean, not because they don't want to hire you, but that's when, when you know you have a great speech when people are like, man, do you have, is this in your book, right? So yeah. the loyalty loop is a speech I've been giving for, for three years. I don't have a book for it yet. And the people that can't afford to hire me to speak or do a workshop on the loyalty loop, you know, certainly ask me immediately, well, man, that's a bummer. I wish I could afford you, but do you have a book that, you know, we could use to implement this? And that's another key signal that, yeah, now you're ready for the book. Like, there's deep insight that you could offer an ad that, and they obviously see it there. They would buy the book if you had it right there. How many different talks do you give on an annual basis? Meaning uh, of different, you're looking to just sessions. Your menu, yeah. Menu of, yeah. menu of talks there. Cause yeah, you know, some, most speakers from on a professional level, they've got, you know, two, three, maybe, you know, keynotes Ooh. that they offer and that's it rather than, you know, we've got 15 different things. So how, <laughs> like, how many, how many do you feel like you've got in your, that you, you, you try to try to primarily point people to? Well, so again, I'm pretty meticulous with this. I try to have a new keynote every single year. And so again, it's kind of cumulative, right? So like people that first saw the loyalty loop three years ago will even invite me back to do the loyalty loop again, because it's actually evolved a lot over that time. Mm -hmm. Um, The thinking has evolved. I'm working on the book for it. You know, so I'm still giving the loyalty loop talk, but it's a very different type of talk depending on the industry I'm going after. So I'd say... I'm going to guess, but I bet if I looked at the data, we have like a five-year span for a speech, meaning like, you know, I started in 2007 giving a speech called Killer Content. And, you know, I probably gave the real last version of that probably three or four years ago. And occasionally, I actually, I just gave it at a pharmaceutical company from someone who saw it five years ago and was like, I just want the same speech. <laughs> right. I was like, are you sure? Like, get updated <laughs> I got, I got if you like. stuff since then. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So... You know, so I do have kind of a, a menu, but I would say that I promote and I, I'm also very, it, when I'm doing free gigs or gigs with heavy discounts, yeah. I'm very clear that the, it's going to be the speech I want to give, not the speech you wish I'd give. Because I need to work on those and I want people to see them and I need the feedback desperately from the audience to figure out what's missing. And I also, you know, when I'm not getting the referrals for the gig, it's really important that I need to see when that kicks in and try to determine what was the difference between that speech and the one I gave a week ago. Why did that get referrals, but the one a week ago didn't? So it sounds like some of what makes the talks referable is not just you sitting at a sitting in a screen typing up a talk, but it's really it's the on stage. Because one of the things I always say is like a talk is an educated guess until you get in front of an audience. 
Like you don't know if it's going to be referable. You don't know if they're going to laugh. You don't know if they're going to be intrigued. You don't know if they're going to be confused until you actually get in front of an audience. So it sounds like as you're working on a new talk and trying to figure out, is it referable enough? Uh, some of that is just to workshopping it, doing some, some, giving some free or discounted talks and getting that feedback that you need and making the adjustments and tweaks as you go. Yeah, there's no way. I don't know if there's no way to know. So I think I'm getting better at getting closer to referable speech faster working on my own, right? But you're right. There is no substitute for a live audience. And it comes down to kind of velocity over time, meaning you have to do a large number of rapid cycle revisions fast until the point it is referable. And then that's where you kind of double down and say, all right, now this is the speech that I'm going to constantly tweak for the next year so that it goes from being a $7,500 speech to a $20,000 speech because I can get referrals at $7,500 easily now. Great. Now what does it take to get it to a $20,000 keynote? So it sounds like just overall kind of putting a a bow on things, like your primary marketing strategy for just getting gigs is just making sure that your talk is insanely good and making sure that it is is referable. And I mean, you hear speakers say that all the time, that your your best marketing asset is showing up and just killing it on stage. And so it sounds like that's definitely been the case for you in your speaking journey. Yeah, yeah. If it's not referable, it's not worth marketing. Very good, very yeah. good. Any final words of wisdom as uh, as we wrap up here for uh, for speakers? Oh, man. Like, all right, I want to make that talk referable. I want to <laughs> continue to build my speaking business. I want to find the right types of events. Any anything that uh, you've been doing this for a while. So, any final uh, words of wisdom? Yeah, I would say focus on the speech first. Like any speech can work for any vertical, and it's actually pretty easy to kind of wedge it into their exact problem. Yeah. But the hardest part is is getting an idea big enough and exciting enough that you can build a framework around it and really deliver something that's that's seen as unbelievably unique in the marketplace. So focus more on the speech itself. And you'll know immediately. I mean, it's it's like night and day. When you have a referable speech, it's like you cannot leave an event without a, a, you know people giving you three things. Hey, uh, this is my name. This is where I work. And this is my title. We have a, a, a specific date for an event. That makes it a hot lead. Yep. We want to hire you, essentially. And if you can get those three things, that speech is per- really wonderful. It's ready to perfect it. Well, and to piggyback on one other thing there, you touched on this earlier. So it sounds like when you get the leads, though, you do have some type of system of what they go into of how you strategically follow up. And I think this oh is where word, yeah. like a lot of speakers drop the ball is you meet someone side stage and they're like, oh, that was amazing. We'd love to have you. And the speaker's just kind of like, all right, cool. Let me know if you're interested. You know, here's my card. And like, that really doesn't do anything. Like I always tell speakers like, you know, you can pass out your card all you want to. I don't even have cards. I want their card. That's the only thing that matters to me. Yeah. Is I want to be in control of the follow-up and the next action. So it sounds like for you, it's been very similar of getting their information, but then not just leaving the ball in their court, but making sure that you're strategically following up. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. I have like a very meticulous process. And in fact, I built my own software to track all of this stuff. So I know the average amount of days that an event is on hold. I know when they're most likely to sign the deal. I know when they're most likely to be in trouble with finding speakers. I know when I should charge more. I kind of have a surge pricing model for my pricing. So I know that my busiest days every year are, you know, whatever, May 15th and, and November 12th, and that I should get the most I'm ever going to get for a speech this year on those two days. And, you know, I'm pretty uncompromising. But yeah, I have an unbelievably meticulous follow-up approach. I have a full-time salesperson and a first full-time logistics person that 
uh, that are constantly making sure it's all running smoothly. Because like your last week's podcast, actually, the most important, the single largest determinant of how successful you'll be in continually getting gigs is how easy you are to work with and how wonderful your team is to work with. So uh, I, we're, I, I'm, I'm just babbling. I'm really sorry, Grant. Um, you're, but. you're good. Well, you know what we need to do? We need to, maybe we'll have to have you back for another episode to dig into that what that software is like in terms of just like what do you what do you do? Yeah, what yeah. do you track? Because again, I think so much of that makes a huge, huge difference. Of I was talking with a potential client yesterday and just simple things like saying, I'm gonna follow up with you on this day, and then you follow up with them on that day. <laughs> like just doing what you said you do, and long before you know they hire you of just giving them what the experience is like to work with you makes a massive, massive difference. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. If I can give, I'll give one last piece of really, I think, sage advice that I've used really well for the last few years is every gig you lose, for whatever reason, whether it was price or your schedule didn't work out, or they just decided against you, you should be referring other speakers that you think would be tremendous for their event, not just random speakers, not speakers that won't deliver, but you should constantly be helping event organizers put together the best event possible. And I have a whole follow-up process for events that um, haven't been able to hire me. Yeah, Some of them are like eight years old. I'm still working on those leads because one day they will be able to hire me. Yeah, totally agree. I remember like uh, early on in my career, if, if I didn't get a gig, I'd be so pissed off. And then I'd realize, wait a minute, they're going to have the gig next year. Exactly. And whoever, whoever they invited this year, they're not going to have next year. And exactly. Yeah, just I remember one I got that after following up with for six years, and then it finally the stars aligned and it worked out. But just staying exactly. top of mind with them. So yeah, this perfect. stuff works, people. <laughs> it really does. It here. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, if people want to find out more about you, what you're up to, where can we go? Best place to find me is uh, probably on Twitter at Drew Davis. Here I have a, a speaker website that I'm updating, which is aka DrewDavis.com. I have a whole model for for my new update, which is based on a, a whole bunch of interviews with event organizers. So I'm excited about that. And you've been Drew.com. If you want some marketing inspiration, you can sign up for six days of inspiration over lunch. I'll send you some videos that yell at you about marketing. Beautiful, which is kind of fun. Awesome, buddy. Well, thanks for the time, man. We appreciate it. It's been great. Thanks, Grant. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew Davis. Really good stuff there. And uh, again, like we kind of teased at the end, we may have to have him back for part two and uh, discuss some more of, of uh, what he does behind the scenes to identify, to follow up, to contact potential leads. Now, I mentioned to you at the top of the show, we have a new free software tool that we'd love for you to check out called Agent. It helps you to identify and find uh, a variety of different events, but then helps you to reach out to them, have a, just a, a basic CRM to follow up with them. So we'd love for you to check that out. Again, you can find that over at myspeakingagent.com, myspeakingagent.com. All right, my friends, that wraps up today's episode. We'll catch you next time. You're awesome. Awesome.